Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The World of Percy Jackson. In this episode, we'll read chapters 11 and 12. Now, in the past episode, we read chapters 9 and 10, and Percy and the group met a sphinx. But the sphinx started did not give the mo- the famous riddle that it always gives. It started giving uh, questions that weren't riddles. And of course, Annabeth thought that was weird, and so she, she confronted the sphinx. And that made the Sphinx mad. So then they had to run away from the Sphinx. And luckily they got away from them. From the Sphinx. So now we'll read chapter 11. I set myself on fire. I thought we'd lost the spider until Tyson heard a faint pinging noise. Sound. We made a few turns, backtrack a few times, and eventually found the spider banging its tiny head on a metal door. The door looked like one of those old-fashioned submarine hatches. Oval with metal rivets around the edges and a wheel for a doorknob. Where the portal should have been was a big brass plaque, green with age with the Greek Eda inscribed in the middle. We all looked at each other. Ready to meet Hephaestus? Grover said nervously. No, I admitted. Yes, Tyson said gleefully as, and he turned the wheel. As soon as the door opened, the spider scuttled inside with Tyson right behind it. The rest of us followed, not quite as anxious. The room was enormous. It looked like a mechanic's garage with several hydraulic lifts. Some had cars on them, but others had stranger things. A bronze hippocaterion with its horse head off and a bunch of wires hanging out its rooster tail, a metal lion that seemed to be hooked up to a battery charger, and a Greek war chariot made entirely of flames. Smaller projects cluttered a dozen work tables. Tools hung along the walls. Each had its own outline on a pegboard, but nothing seemed to be in the right place. The hammer was over the screwdriver place. The staple gun was where the hacksaw was supposed to go. Underneath, under the nearest hydraulic lift, which was holding a 98 Toyota Corolla, a pair of legs stuck out. The lower half of a huge man in grubby gray pants and shoes even bigger than Tyson's. One leg was in a metal brace. The spiders scuttled straight under the car, and the sounds of banging stopped. Well, well, a deep voice from boomed from under the Corolla. What have we here? The mechanic pushed out on a back trolley and sat up. I'd seen Hephaestus once before, briefly on Olympus. So I thought I was prepared, but his appearance made me gulp. I guess he'd cleaned up when I saw him on Olympus, or used magic to make his form seem a little less hideous. Here, in his own workshop, he apparently didn't care how he looked. He wore a jumpsuit smeared with oil and grime. Hephaestus was embroidered over the chest pocket. His leg creaked and clicked in its metal brace as as he stood. And his left shoulder was lower than his right, so he seemed to be leaning even when he was standing up straight. His head was misshapen and bulging. He wore a permanent scowl. His black beard smoked and hissed. Every once in a while, a small wildfire would erupt in his whiskers, then die out. His hands were the size of catcher's mitts, but he handled a spider with amazing skill. He disassembled it in two seconds, then put it back together. There... He muttered to himself, much better. 
The spider did a happy flip in his palm, shot a metallic web at the ceiling, and went swinging away. Hephaestus glowered up at us. I didn't make you, did I? Uh, Annabeth said, no, sir. Good, the god grumbled. Shoddy worksmanship. He studied Annabeth and me. Half-bloods, he grunted. Could be automatons, of course, but probably not. We've met, sir, I told him. Have we? The god asked absently. I got the feeling he didn't care one way or the other. He was just trying to figure out how my jaw worked, whether it was a hinge or a lever, lever or what. Well then, if I didn't smash you to a pulp the first time we met, I suppose I won't have to do it now. He looked at Grover and frowned. Sater. Then he looked at Tyson and his eyes twinkled. Well, a cyclops. Good, good. What are you doing traveling with this lot? Uh, said Tyson, staring in wonder at the god. Yes, well said, Hephaestus agreed. So there'd better be a good reason you're disturbing me. The suspension on this Corolla is no small matter, you know. Sir, Annabeth said hesitantly, we're looking for Daedalus. We thought, Daedalus, the god roared. You want that old scoundrel? You dare to seek him out? His beard burst into flames and his black eyes glowed. glowed. Uh, yes, sir, please, Annabeth said. Huh, you're wasting your time. He frowned at something on his work table and limped over to it. He picked up a lump of springs and metal plates and tinkered with them. In a few seconds, he was holding a bronze and silver falcon. It spread its metal wings, blinked its obsidian eyes, and flew around the room. Tyson laughed and clapped his hands. The bird landed on Tyson's shoulder and nipped his ear affectionately. Hephaestus regarded him. The, ga- the god's scowl didn't change, but I thought I saw a kinder twinkle in his eyes. I sense you have something to tell me, Cyclops. Tyson's smile faded. Y- 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 yes, Lord. We met a hundred-handed one. Hephaestus nodded, looking unsurprised. Briars? Briars? Yes. He, he was scared. He would not help us. And that bothered you? Yes. Tyson's voice wavered. Briars should be strong. He is older and greater than Cyclops. But he ran away. Hephaestus grunted. There was a time when I admired the hundred-handed ones. Back in the days of the first war. But people... Monsters, even gods change, young Cyclops. You can't trust him. Look at my loving mother, Hera. You met her, didn't you? She'll smile to your face and talk about how important family is, eh? Didn't stop her from pitching me off Mount Olympus when she saw my ugly face. But I thought Zeus did that to you, I said. Hephaestus cleared his throat and spat into a bronze spittoon. He snapped his fingers and the robotic falcon flew back to the work table. Mother likes telling that version of the story, he grumbled. Makes her seem more likable, doesn't it? Blaming it all on my dad. The truth is, my mother likes families. But she likes a certain kind of family. Perfect families. She took one look at me and, well, I don't fit the image, do I? He pulled a feather from the falcon's back and the whole automaton fell apart. Believe me, young Cyclops, Hephaestus said. 
You can't trust others. All you can trust is the work of your own hands. Seemed like a pretty lonely way to live. Plus, I didn't exactly trust the work of Hephaestus. One time in Denver, these mechanical spiders had almost killed Annabeth and me. And last year, it had been a defective Taylor statue that cost Bianca her life. Another one of Hephaestus' little projects. He focused on me and narrowed his eyes, as if he were reading my thoughts. Oh, this one doesn't like me, he mused. No worries, I'm used to that. What would you ask of me, little demigod? We told you, I said. We need to find Daedalus. There's this guy, Luke, and he's working for Kronos. He's trying to find a way to navigate the labyrinth so that he can invade our camp. If we don't get to Daedalus first, and I told you, boy, looking for Daedalus is a waste of time. He won't help you. Why not? Hephaestus shrugged. Some of us get thrown off mountainsides. Some of us, the way we learn not to trust people is even more painful. Ask me, ask me for gold, or flaming sword, or magical steed. These I can grant you easily, but a way to Daedalus, that's an expensive favor. You know where he is then, Annabeth pressed. It isn't wise to go looking, girl. My mother says looking is the nature of wisdom. Hephaestus narrowed his eyes. Who's your mother then? Athena. Figures, he sighed. Fine goddess Athena. A shame she pledged never to marry. All right, Half-Blood. I can tell you what you want to know, but there's a price. I need a favor done. Name it, Annabeth said. Hephaestus actually laughed. A booming sound like a huge bellows took a stoking of fire. You heroes, he said, always making a rash promises. How refreshing. He pressed a button on his workbench and metal shutters opened along the wall. It was either a huge window or a big screen TV. I couldn't tell which. We were looking at a gray mountain ringed in forests. It must have been a volcano because smoke rose from the, its crest. One of my forges, Hephaestus said. I have many, but that used to be my favorite. Th that's Mount St. Helens, Grover said. Great forests around there. You've been there? I asked. Looking for, you know, Pan? Wait, Ambit said, looking at Hephaestus. You said it used to be your favorite. What happened? Hephaestus scratched his smoldering beard. Well, that's where the monster Typhon is trapped, you know? He used to be under Mount Etna, but when we moved to America, his force got pinned under Mount St. Helens instead. Great source of fire, but a bit dangerous. There's always a chance he'll escape. Lots of eruptions these days, smoldering all the time. He's restless with the Titan Rebellion. What do you want us to do? I, I said. Fight him? Hephaestus snorted. <laughs> that would be suicide. The gods themselves ran from Typhon when he was free. No, pray you never have to see him, much less fight him. But lately I have sensed intruders in my mountain. Someone or something is using my forges. When I go there, it is empty, but I can tell it's being used. They sense me coming and they disappear. I send my automatons to investigate, but they do not return. Something ancient is there, evil. I want to know who dare invade my territory. 
and if they mean to lose Typhon. You want us to find out who it is, I said. Hey, Hephaestus said. Go there. They may not sense you coming. You are not gods. Glad you noticed, I muttered. Go and find out what you can, Hephaestus said. Report back to me, and I will tell you what you need to know about Daedalus. All right, Embit said. How do we get there? Hephaestus clapped his hands. The spider came swinging down from the rafters. Ambit flinched when it landed at her feet. Hephaestus clapped his hands. The spider came swinging down from the rafters. Ambit flinched when it landed at her feet. My creation will show you the way, Hephaestus said. It is not far through the labyrinth, and try to stay alive, will you? Humans are much more fragile than automatons. We are doing okay until we hit the tree roots. The spider raced along and we were keeping up. But then we spotted a tunnel off to the side that was dug from raw earth and wrapped in thick roots. Grover stopped dead in his tracks. What is it? I asked. I said. He didn't move. He stared open-mouthed into the dark tunnel. His curly hair rustled in the breeze. Come on, Ambit said. We have to keep moving. This is the way, Grover muttered in awe. This is it. What way? I asked. You mean, to Pan? Grover looked at Tyson. Don't you smell it? Dirt, Tyson said. And plants. Yes, this is the way. I'm sure of it. Up ahead, the spider was getting farther down the stone corridor. A few more seconds and we'd lose it. We'll come back, Amber promised, on our way back to Hephaestus. The tunnel will be gone by then, Grover said. I have to follow it. A door like this won't stay open. But we can, Ambit said. The forges. Grover looked at her sadly. I have to, Annabeth. Don't you understand? She looked desperate, like she didn't understand at all. The spider was almost out of sight. But I thought about my conversation with Grover last night, and I knew what we had to do. We'll split up. I said. No, Ambit said. That's way too dangerous. How will we ever find each other again? And Grover can't go alone? Tyson put his hand on Grover's shoulder. I, I will go with him. I couldn't believe I was hearing this. Tyson, are you sure? The big guy nodded. Goat boy needs help. We'll find the god person. I am not like Hephaestus. I trust friends. Grover took a deep breath. Percy, we'll find each other again. We, we still got the empathy link. I just have to. I didn't blame him. This was his life's goal. If he didn't find Pan on, on this journey, the council would never give him another chance. I hope you're right, I said. I know I am. I never heard him sound so confident about anything. Except maybe that cheese enchiladas were better than chicken enchiladas. Be careful, I told him. Then I looked at Tyson. He gulped back a sob and gave me a hug that just about squeezed my eyes out of their sockets. Then he and Grover disappeared through the tunnel of tree roots and were lost in the darkness. This is bad, Annabit said. Splitting up is a really, really bad idea. We'll see them again, I said, trying to sound confident. Now come on, the spider is getting away. It wasn't long before the tunnel started to get hot. 
The stone walls glowed. The air felt as if we were walking through an oven. The tunnel sloped down and I could hear a loud roar like a river of metal. The spiders skittered along with Annabeth right behind. Hey, wait up, I called her. She glanced back at me. Yeah? Something Hephaestus said back there. About Athena? She swore never to marry, Annabeth said. Like Artemis and Hestia. She's one of the maiden goddesses. I blinked. I never heard that about Athena before. But then, how come, how come she has demigod children? I nodded. I was probably blushing, but hopefully it was hot, so hot anyway that Annabeth didn't notice. Percy, do you know how Athena was born? She sprung from the head of Zeus in full battle armor or something. Exactly. She wasn't born in the normal way. She was literally born from thoughts. Her children are born the same way. When Athena falls in love with a mortal man, it's purely intellectual. The, the way she loved Odysseus in the old stories, it's a meaning of minds. She would tell you that's the purest kind of love. So your dad and Athena, so you weren't... I was a brainchild, Athena, uh, Annabeth said. Literally. Children of Athena are sprung from the divine thoughts of her mother and the mortal in- ingenuity of her father. We are supposed to be a gift, a blessing from Athena on the men she favors. But Percy, the spider's getting away. Do you really want to explain the? Do you really want me to explain the exact details of how I was born? Um, no, that's okay. She smirked. I thought not. And she ran ahead. I followed, but I wasn't sure I would ever look at Annabeth the same way again. I decided some things were better left as mysteries. The roaring got louder. After another half mile or so, we emerged in a cavern the size of a Super Bowl stadium. Our spider escort stopped and curled into a ball. We arrived at the forge of Hephaestus. There was no floor, just bubbling lava hundreds of feet below. We stood on a rock ridge that circled the cavern. A network of metal bridges spanned across it. At the center was a huge platform with all sorts of machines, cauldrons, forges, and the largest anvil I'd ever seen. A block of iron the size of a house. Creatures moved around the platform, several strange dark shapes, but they were too far away to make out details. We'll never be able to sneak up on them, I said. Amber picked up the metal spider and slipped it into her pocket. I can. Wait here. Hold it! I said, but before I could argue, she put on her Yankees cap and turned invisible. I didn't dare call after her, but I didn't like the idea of her approaching the forge on her own. If those things out there could sense a god coming, would Annabeth be safe? I looked back at the labyrinth tunnel. I missed Grover and Tyson already. Finally, I decided I couldn't stay put. I crept along the outer rim of the lava lake, hoping I could get a better angle to see what was happening in the middle. The heat was horrible. Garriott's ranch had, had been a winter wonderland compared to this. In no time, I was drenched with sweat. My eyes stung from the smoke. I moved along, trying to keep away from the edge until I found my way blocked by a cart on metal wheels, like the kind they use in mine shafts. I lift up the tarp and found it was half full of scrap metal. I was about to squeeze my way around it when I heard voices from up ahead, probably from a side tunnel. Bring it in, one asked. Yeah, another said. Movie's just about done. 
I panicked. I didn't have time to back up. There was nowhere to hide except the cart. I scrambled inside and pulled the tarp over me, hoping no one had seen me. I crawled my fingers around Riptide just in case I had to fight. The cart lurched forward. Oi! A gruff voice said. Thing weighs all a ton! It's Celestial Bronze, the other said. What do you expect? I got pulled along. We turned a corner and from the sound of the wheels echoing against the walls, I guess we had passed down a tunnel into a smaller room. Hopefully, I was not about to be dumped into a smelting pot. If they started to tip me over, I'd have to fight my way out quick. I heard lots of talking, chattering voices that didn't sound human. Somewhere between a seal's bark and a dog's growl. There were other sounds too, like an old-fashioned film projector and a tinny noise narrating. Just set it in the back, a new voice ordered from across the room. Now, younglings, please attend to the film. There will be time for questions afterward. The voices quieted down and I could hear the, fi- the film. As a young sea demon much matures, the narrator said, changes happen in the monster's body. You may notice your fangs getting longer and you may have a sudden desire to devour human beings. These changes are perfectly normal and happen to all young monsters. Excited snarling filled the room. The teacher, I guess it must have been the teacher, told the younglings to be quiet and the film continued. I didn't understand most of it and I didn't dare look. The film kept talking about growth spurts and acne problems caused by working in the forges and proper flipper hygiene. Finally, it was over. Now, younglings, the instructor said, what is the proper name of our kind? Sea demons, one of them barked. No, anyone else? Telekines, another monster growled. Very good, the instructor said. And why are we here? Revenge! Chevrolet shouted. Yes, yes, but why? Zeus is evil, one monster said. He had cast us into Tartarus just because we use magic. Indeed, the instructor said. After we made so many of the gods' finest weapons, the trident of Poseidon for one, and of course, we made the greatest weapon of the Titans. Nevertheless, Zeus cast us away and relied on those fumbling Cyclops. That is why we are taking over the forges of the usurper. Hephaestus, and soon we will control the undersea furnaces, our ancestral home. I clutched my pen sword. These snarling things had created Poseidon's trident? What were they talking about? I never even heard of a telekine. And so, younglings, the instructor continued, who do we serve? Kronos, they shouted. And when you grow to be big telekines, will you make weapons? For, the, for his army. Yes! Excellent! Now we've brought in some scraps for you to practice with. Let's see how ingenu- ingenuous you are. Ingenious you are. There was a rush of moment and excited voices coming toward the cart. I got ready to, unca- to uncap Riptide. The tarp was thrown back. I jumped up, my bronze sword springing to life in my hands, and found myself facing a bunch of dogs. Well, their faces were dogs anyway, with black snouts, brown eyes, and pony pointy ears. Their bodies were sleek and black like sea mammals, with stubby legs that were half flipper, half foot, and human-like hands with sharp claws. If you blended together, 
a kid. If you blended together a kid, a Doberman Pinscher, and a sea lion, you'd get something like what I was looking at. A demigod! I once snarled. Eat it! Yelled another. But that's as far as they got before I slashed a wide arc with Riptide and vaporized the entire front row of monsters. Back off! I yelled at the rest, trying to sound fierce. Behind them stood their instructor, a six-foot-tall telekine with Doberman fangs snarling at me. I did my best to stare him down. New lesson, class, I announced. Most monsters will vaporize when sliced with a celestial bronze sword. This change is perfectly normal and will happen to you right now if you don't back off. To my surprise, it worked. These, the monsters backed up, but there were at least 20 of them. My fear factor wasn't going to last long. I jumped out of the car, yelled, class dismissed, and ran for the exit. The monsters charged after me, barking and growling. I hoped they, didn't, they couldn't run very fast with those stubby little legs and flippers. But they waddled along pretty quickly. Thank the gods there was a door on the tunnel leading out to the main cavern. I slammed it shut and turned the wheel handle to lock it, but I doubted it would keep them long. I didn't know what to do. Abbott was out here somewhere, invisible. Our chance for a subtle reconnaissance mission had just been blown. I ran toward the platform at the center of the lava lake. Annabeth! I yelled. Shh! An invisible hand clamped over my mouth and wrestled me down behind a big bronze cauldron. You want to get us killed? I found her head and took off her Yankee's cap. She shimmered into existence in, in front of me, scowling. Her face streaked with ash and grime. Percy, what is your problem? We're going to have company, I explained quickly after the, after, about the more monster orientation class. Her eyes widened. So that's what they are, she said. Telekines, I should have known, and they're making... Well, look. We peeked over the car cauldron. In the center of the platform stood four sea demons, but these were fully grown, at least eight feet tall. Their black skin glistened in the firelight as they worked. Sparks flying as they took turns, hammering on a long piece of glowing hot metal. The blade is almost complete, one said. It needs another cooling in blood to fuse the metals. Aye, a second said. It shall be even sharper than before. What is that? Ambit shook her head. They keep talking about fusing metals. I wonder. They were talking about the greatest titan weapon, I said. And they... They said they made my father's trident. The telekines betrayed the gods, Ambit said. They were practicing dark magic. I don't know what exactly, but Zeus banished them to Tartarus. With Kronos. She nodded. We have to get out. No sooner had she said that than the door to the classroom exploded and the young telekines came pouring in. They stumbled over each other, trying to figure out which way to charge. Put your cap back on, I said. Get out! What? Annabeth shrieked. No, I'm not going. I'm not leaving you. I've got a plan. I'll distract him. You can use the metal spider. Maybe he'll lead you back to Hephaestus. You have to tell him what's going on. But you'll be killed. I'll be fine. Besides, we've got no choice. Abbott glared at me like she was going to punch me. And then she did something that surprised me even more. She kissed me. Be careful, seaweed brain. She put on her hat and vanished.
I probably would have sat there for the rest of the day, staring at the lava and trying to remember what my name was, but the sea demons jarred me back to reality. There! One yelled. The entire class of telekines charged across the bridge toward me. I ran for the middle of the platform, surprising the fold of four elder sea demons so much they dropped the red-hot blade. It was about six feet long and curved like a crescent moon. I'd seen a lot of terrifying things, but this unfinished whatever it was scared me even worse. The elder demons got over the surprise quickly. There were four ramps leading off the platform, and before I could dash in any direction, each of them had covered an exit. The tallest one snarled. What do we have here? A son of Poseidon? Yes, another growled. I can smell the sea in his blood. I raised Riptide. My heart was pounding. Strike down one of us, demigod, the third demon said, and the rest of us shall tear you to shreds. Your father betrayed us. He took our gift and said nothing as we were cast into the pit. We will see him sliced to pieces, he and all the other Olympians. I wish I had a plan. I wish I hadn't been lying to Annabeth. I'd wanted her to get out safely, and I hoped she'd been sensible enough to do it. But now it was dawning at me that this might be the place I, I would die. No prophecies for me. I would get over, overrun in the heart of a volcano by a pack of dog-faced sea lion people. The young telekines were at the platform now, too, snarling and waiting to see how their four elders would deal with me. I felt something burning against the side of my leg. The ice whistle in my pocket was getting colder. If I ever needed help, now was the time. But I hesitated. I didn't trust Quintus's gift. Before I could make up my mind, the tallest telekine said, let us see how strong he is. Let us see how long it takes him to burn. He scooped some lava out of the nearest furnace. It set his fingers ablaze, but this didn't seem to bother him at all. The other elder telkines did the same. The first one threw a glop of molten rock, molten rock at me and set my pants on fire. Two more splattered across my chest. I dropped my sword in sheer terror and swatted at my clothes. Fire was engulfing me. Strangely, it felt only warm at first, but it was getting hotter by the instant. Your father's nature protects you. One said, makes you hard to burn, but not impossible, youngling. Not impossible. They threw more lava at me, and I remember screaming. My whole body was on fire. The pain was worse than anything I'd ever felt. I was being consumed. I crumpled to the metal floor and heard the sea demon children howling in delight. Then I remembered the voice of the river Nyad at the ranch. The water is within me. I needed the sea. I felt a tugging sensation in my gut, but I had nothing around to help me. Not a faucet or a river. Not even a petrified seashell this time. And besides, the last time I had unleashed my power at the stables, there had been that scary moment when it had almost gotten away from me. I had no choice. I called to the sea. I reached inside and remembered the waves and the currents, the endless power of the ocean. And I let it loose in one horrible scream. Afterward, I could never describe what happened. An explosion, a tidal wave, a whirlwind of power simultaneously catching me up and blasting me downward into the lava. Fire and water collided, superheated steam, and I shot it upward from the heart of the volcano in a huge explosion. Just one piece of flotsam 
thrown free by a million pounds of pressure. The last thing I remember before losing consciousness was flying. Flying so high, Zeus would never have forgiven me in the beginning to fall. Smoke and fire and water streaming from me. It was a comet hurtling toward the earth. And that is the end of chapter 11. We'll have to see what happens to Percy right after this break. When we read chapter 12, I take a permanent vacation. And we are back from the ads. And now we'll read chapter 12. I take a permanent vacation. I woke up feeling like I was still on fire. My skin stung. My throat felt as dry as sand. I saw blue sky and trees above me. I heard a fountain gurgling and smelled juniper and cedar and a bunch of other sweet-scented plants. I heard waves, too, gently lapping on a rocky shore. I wondered if I was dead, but I knew better. I'd been to the land of the dead, and there was no blue sky. I tried to sit up. My muscles felt like they were melting. Stay still, a girl's voice said. You're too weak to rise. She laid a cool cloth across my forehead. A bronze spoon hovered over me, and liquid was dribbled into my mouth. The drink soothed my throat and left a warm, chocolatey aftertaste. Nectar of the gods. Then the girl's face appeared above me. She had almond eyes and caramel-colored hair braided over one shoulder. She was... 15? 16? It was hard to tell. She had one of those faces that just seemed timeless. She began singing and my pain dissolved. She was working magic. I could feel her music sinking into my skin, healing and repairing my burns. Who? I croaked. Shh, brave one, she said. Rest and heal. No harm will come to you here. I am Calypso. The next time I woke, I was in a cave. But as far as caves go, I've been in a lot worse. The ceiling glittered with different colored crystal formations. White and purple and green. Like I was inside one of those cut geodes you see in the souvenir shop. I was lying on a comfortable bed with feather pillows and white cotton sheets. The cave was divided into sections by white silk curtains. Against one wall stood a large room and a harp. Against the other wall were shelves neatly stacked with jars of fruit preserves. Dried herbs hung from the ceiling. Rosemary, thyme, and a bunch of other stuff. My mother could have named them all. There was a fireplace built in the cave wall and a pot bubbling over the flames. It smelled great like beef stew. I sat up trying to ignore the throbbing pain in my head. I looked at my arms, sure that they would be hideously scarred, but they seemed fine. A little pinker than usual, but not bad. I was wearing a white cotton t-shirt and cotton drawstring pants that weren't mine. My feet were bare. In a moment of panic, I wondered what happened to Riptide, but I felt my pocket and there was my pen, right where it always reappeared. Not only that, but the Stygian ice dog whistle was back in my pocket, too. Somehow it followed me, and that didn't exactly reassure me. With difficulty, I stood. The stone floor was freezing under my feet. I turned and found myself staring into a polished bronze mirror. Holy Poseidon, I muttered. I looked as if I'd lost 20 pounds I couldn't afford to lose. My hair was a rat's nest, 
It's it was sing singed at the he- edges like Hephaestus's beard. If I saw that face on somebody walking down a highway intersection asking for money, I would have locked the car doors. I turned away from the mirror. The cave entrance was to my left. I headed toward the daylight. The cave opened a green meadow. On the left was a grove of cedar trees, and on the right, a huge flower garden. Four fountains gurgled in the meadow, each shooting water from the pipes of stone satyrs. Straight ahead, the grass sloped down to a rocky beach. The waves of a lake lapped against the stones. I could tell it was a lake because, well, I just could. Fresh water, not salt. The sun sparkled on the water, and the sky was pure blue. It seemed like a paradise, which immediately made me nervous. You deal with mythological stuff for a few years. You learn that paradises are usually places you, where you get killed. The girl with the braided caramel hair, the one who'd called herself Calypso, was standing at the beach talking to someone. I couldn't see him very well in the shimmer from the sunlight off the water, but they appeared to be arguing. I tried to remember what I knew about Calypso from the old myths. I heard the name before, but I couldn't remember. Was she a monster? Did she trap heroes and kill them? But if she was evil, why was I still alive? I walked toward her slowly because my legs were still stiff. When the grass changed to gravel, I looked down to keep my balance. And when I looked up again, the girl was alone. She wore a white sleeveless Greek dress with a low circuline neckline trimmed in gold. She brushed at her eyes like she'd just been crying. Well, she said, trying for a smile. The sleeper finally awakes. Who are you talking to? My voice sounded like a frog that had spent time in a microwave. Oh, just a messenger, she said. How do you feel? How long have I been out? Time, Calypso mused. Time is always difficult here. I honestly don't know, Percy. You know my name? You talk in your sleep. I blushed. Yeah, uh, I've been uh, told that before. Yes. Who is Annabeth? Oh, uh, a friend. We were together when... Wait, how did I get here? Where am I? Calypso reached up and ran her fingers through my mangled hair. I stepped back nervously. I'm sorry, she said. I've just grown used to caring for you. As to how you got here, you fell from the sky. You landed in the water just there. She pointed across the beach. I do not know how you survived. The waters seemed to cushion your fall. As to where you are, you are in Ogia. Ogigia. You're in Ogigia. She pronounced it like Ogigia. Is that near Mount St. Helens? I asked because my geography was pretty terrible. Calypso laughed. It was a small, restrained laugh, like she found me really funny but didn't want to embarrass me. She was cute when she laughed. It isn't near anything, brave one, she said. Ojigia is my phantom island. It exists by itself, anywhere and nowhere. You can heal here in safety. Never fear. But my friends... Annabeth, she said, and Grover and Tyson? Yes, I said. I have to get back to them. They're in danger. She touched my face, and I didn't back away this time. 
Rest first. You are no good to your friends until you heal. As soon as she said it, I realized how tired I was. You're not... You're not an evil sorceress, are you? She smiled coyly. Why would you think that? Well, I met, I met Cirque once. And she had a pretty nice island too. Except she liked to turn men into guinea pigs. Calypso gave me a laugh again. I promise I will, I will not turn you into, gimme, into a guinea pig. Or anything else. I am no evil sorceress, Calypso said. And I am not your enemy, brave one. Now rest. Your eyes are already closing. She was right. My knees buckled and I would have landed face first in the gravel if Calypso hadn't caught me. Her hair smelled like cinnamon. She was very strong. Or maybe I was just really weak and thin. She walked me back to a cushioned bench by the fountain and helped me lie down. Rest, she ordered, and I fell asleep to the sound of the fountains and the smell of cinnamon and ju juniper. The next time I woke, it was night, but I wasn't sure if it was the same night or many nights later. I was in the bed in the cave, but I rose and wrapped a robe around myself and padded outside. The stars were brilliant, thousands of them, like you only see way out, of the, uh, way out in the country. I could make all the constellations anybody had taught me. Capricorn, Pegasus, Sagittarius. And there, near the southern horizon, was a new constellation. The Huntress. A tribute to a friend of ours who had died last winter. Percy, what do you see? I brought my eyes back to Earth. However amazing the stars were, Calypso was twice as brilliant. I mean, I've seen the goddess of love herself, Aphrodite. And I would never say this out loud or she'd blast me to ashes. But for my money, Calypso was a lot more beautiful because she just seemed so natural. Like she wasn't trying to be beautiful and didn't even care about that. She just was. With her braided hair and white dress, she seemed to glow in the moonlight. She was holding a tiny plant in her hands. Its flowers were silver and delicate. I was just looking at I found myself staring at her face. Uh, I forgot. She laughed gently. Well, as long as you're up, you can help me plant these. She handed me a plant, which had a clump of dirt and roots at the base. The flowers glowed as I held them. Calypso picked up her gardening spade and directed me to the edge of the garden, where she began to dig. That's moonless. Moonlace, Calypso explained. It can only be planted at night. I watched the silvery light flicker around the petals. What does it do? Do? Calypso mused. It doesn't really do anything, I suppose. It lives. It gives light. It provides beauty. Does it have to do anything else? I suppose not, I said. She took the plant, and her hands met. Her fingers were warm. She planted the moonlace and stepped back, surveying her work. I love my garden. It's awesome. I agreed. I agreed. I mean, I wasn't exactly a gardening type, but Calypso had arbors covered with six different colors of roses, lattices filled with honeysuckle, rows of grapevine bursting with red and purple and the grapes that would have made Dionysus sit up and beg. Back home, I said, my mom always wanted a garden. Why did she not plant one? Well, we live in Manhattan. In an apartment. Manhattan? Apartment? I stared at her. 
You don't know what I'm talking about, do you? I fear not. I haven't left Ojijia in a long time. Well, Manhattan's a big city with not much gardening space. Calypso frowned. That is sad. Hermes visits from time to time. He tells me the world outside has changed greatly. I did not realize it changed so much you cannot have gardens. Why haven't you left your island? She looked down. It is my punishment. Why? What did you do? I? Nothing. But I'm afraid my father did a great deal. His name is Atlas. The name sent a shiver down my back. I met the Titan Atlas last winter. It had not been a happy time. He tried to kill pretty much everyone I cared about. Still, I said hesitantly, it's not fair to punish you for what your father's done. I knew another daughter of Atlas. Her name was Zoe. She was one of the bravest people I've ever met. Calypso studied for me for a long time. Her eyes were sad. What is it? I asked. Are, are you healed yet my, yet, my brave one? Do you think you'll be ready to leave soon? What? I asked. I don't know. I moved my legs. They were still stiff. I was already getting dizzy from standing up so long. You want me to go? I... Her voice broke. I'll see you in the morning. Sleep well. She ran off toward the beach. I was too confused to do anything but watch until she disappeared in the dark. I don't know exactly how much time passed. Like Calypso said, it was hard to keep track on the island. I knew I should be leaving. At the very least, my friends would be worried. At worst, they could be in serious danger. I didn't even know if Annabeth had made it out of the volcano. I tried to use my empathy link with Grover several times, but I couldn't make contact. I hated not knowing if they were alright. On the other hand, I, was, I really was weak. I couldn't stand my feet more than a few hours. Whatever I'd done in Mount St. Helens had drained me like nothing else I'd ever experienced. I didn't feel like a prisoner or anything. I remember the Lotus Hotel and Casino in Vegas, where I'd been lured into this amazing game world until I almost forgot everything I cared about. But the island of Ajigia wasn't like that at all. I thought about Annabeth, Grover, and Tyson constantly. I remembered exactly why I needed to leave. I just couldn't. And then there was Calypso herself. She never talked much about herself, but that just made me want to know more. I would sit in the meadows, sipping nectar, and I would try to concentrate on the flowers or the clouds or the reflection on the lake. But I was really staring at Calypso as she worked. The way she brushed her hair over her shoulder and the little strand that fell in her face whenever she knelt to dig in the garden. Sometimes she would hold out her hand and birds would fly out of the woods to settle on her arm. Lorikeets, parrots, doves. She would tell them good morning, asking how it was going back at the nest. And then they would chirp for a while, then fly off cheerfully. Calypso's eyes gleamed. She would look at me and we share a smile, but almost immediately, she'd get that sad expression again and turn away. I didn't understand what was bothering her. One night, we were eating dinner together at the beach. Invisible servants had, dis- had set up a table with beef stew and apple cider, which may not sound all that exciting, but that's because you haven't tasted it. I haven't even noticed the invisible servants when I first got to the island. 
But after a while, I became aware of the beds making themselves, meals cooking on their own, clothes being washed and folded by unseen hands. Anyway, Calypso and I were sitting at a dinner, and she looked beautiful in the candlelight. I was telling her about New York and Camp Half-Blood. And then I started telling her about the time Grover had eaten an apple while we were playing hacky sack with it. She laughed, showing off her amazing smile. Then her eyes met. Then she dropped her gaze. There it is again, I said. What? You keep pulling away like you're trying not to enjoy yourself. She kept her eyes on her glass of cider. As I told you, Percy, I have been punished. Cursed, you might say. How? Tell me, I want to help. Don't say that. Please don't say that. Tell me what the punishment is. She covered her half-finished stew with a napkin, and immediately an invisible servant whisked the bowl away. Percy, this island, Ojijia, is my home, my birthplace, but it is also my prison. I'm under house arrest, I guess you would call it. I will never visit this Manhattan of yours, or anywhere else. I am alone here, because your father was Atlas. She nodded. The gods do not trust their enemies, and rightly so, I should not complain. Some of the prisons are not nearly as nice as mine. But that's not fair, I said. Just because you're related doesn't mean you support him. This other daughter I knew, Zoe Nightshade, she fought against him. She wasn't imprisoned. But Percy, Calypso said gently. I did support him in the first war. He is my father. What? But the Titans are evil. Are they? All of them? All the time? She pursed her lips. Tell me, Percy, I have no wish to argue with you. But do you support the gods because they're good or because they're your family? I didn't answer. She had a point. Last winter, after Annabeth and I had saved Olympus, the gods had a debate about whether or not they should kill me. That hadn't been exactly good. But still, I felt like I supported them because Poseidon was my dad. Perhaps I was wrong in the war, Calypso said. And in fairness, the gods have treated me well. They visit me from time to time. They bring me word of the outside world. But they can leave, and I cannot. You don't have any friends? I asked. I mean, wouldn't anyone else live here with you? It's a nice place. A tear trickled down her cheek. I I promised myself I wouldn't speak of this, but... She was interrupted by a rumbling sound somewhere out of the lake. On the lake. A glow appeared on the horizon. It got brighter and brighter until I could see a column of fire moving across the surface of the water, coming toward us. I stood and reached for my sword. What is that? Calypso sighed. <sighs> a visitor. As the column of fire reached the beach, Calypso stood and bowed to it formally. The flames dissipated, and standing before us was a tall man in gray overalls and a metal leg brace, his beard and hair smoldering with fire. Lord Hephaestus, Calypso said, this is a rare honor. The fire god grunted. Calypso, beautiful as always. Would you excuse us, please, my dear? I need to have a word with our young Percy Jackson. Hephaestus sat down clumsily at the dinner table and ordered a Pepsi. The invisible servant brought him one, opened it too suddenly, and sprayed soda all over the god's work clothes. 
Hephaestus roared and spat a few curses and swatted the can away. Stupid servants, she, he muttered. Good automatons are what she needs. They never act up. Hephaestus, what... I said. What's going on? Is animate... She's fine, he said. Resourceful girl, that one. Found her way back. Told me the whole story. She's worried sick, you know. You haven't told her I'm okay? That's for not That's not for me to say, Hephaestus said. Everyone thinks you're dead. I had to be sure you were coming back before I started telling everyone where you were. What do you mean? I said. Of course I'm coming back. Hephaestus studied me skeptically. He fished something out of his pocket. A metal disc the size of an iPod. He clicked a button and it expanded into a miniature bronze TV. On the screen was news footage of Mount St. Helens. A huge plume of fire and ash trailing into the sky. Still uncertain about further eruptions, the newscaster was saying, authorities have ordered the evacuation of almost half a million people as a precaution. Meanwhile, ash has fallen as far away as Lake Tahoe and Vancouver, and the entire Mount St. Helens area is close to traffic within a 100-mile radius. While no deaths have been reported, minor injuries and illnesses include. Hephaestus switched it off. You caused quite an explosion. I stared at the blank bronze screen. Half a million evacuated? Injuries? Illness? What had I done? The telekines, the telekines were scattered, the god told me. Some vaporized, some got away, no doubt. I don't think they'll be using my forge anytime soon. On the other hand, neither will I. The explosion caused, caused Typha to stir in his sleep. We'll have to wait and see. I couldn't release him, could I? I mean, I'm not that powerful. The god grunted. Not that powerful, eh? Could have fooled me. You're the son of the Earthshaker, lad. You don't know your own strength. That's the last thing I wanted him to say. I hadn't been in control of myself in that mountain. I released so much energy, I'd almost vaporized myself, drained all the life out of me. Now I found out I nearly destroyed the Northwest U.S., and almost woken the most horrible monster ever imprisoned by the gods. Maybe I was too dangerous. Maybe it was safer for my friends to think I was dead. What about Tyson and Grover? Grover and Tyson, I asked. Hephaestus shook his head. No word, I'm afraid. I suppose the labyrinth has them. So what am I supposed to do? Hephaestus winced. Don't ever ask an old cripple for advice, lad. But I'll tell you this. You went, you've met my wife, Aphrodite. That's her. She's a tricky one, lad. Be careful of love. It'll twist your brain around and leave you thinking up is down and right is wrong. I thought about my meeting with Aphrodite in the back of a white Cadillac in the desert last winter. She told me she had taken a special interest in me and she'd been making things hard for me in the romance department just because she liked me. Is this part of her plan? I asked. Did she land me here? Possibly. Hard to say with her. But if you decide to leave this place, and I don't say what's right or wrong, then I promised you an answer to your quest. I promised you the way to Daedalus. Well, now, here's the thing. It has nothing to do with Ariadne's string. Not really. Sure, the string works. That's what the Titan army will be after. But the best way through the maze? To see us had the princess's help. And the princess was a regular mortal. Not a drop of god blood in her, but she was clever, and she could see, lad. She could see very clearly. 
So what I'm saying, I think you know how to navigate the maze. It finally sank in. Why hadn't I seen it before? Hera had been right. The answer was there all the time. Yeah, I said. Yeah, I know. Then you'll need to decide whether or not you're leaving. I... I wanted to say yes. Of course I would. But the words stuck in my throat. I found myself looking out the, uh, out the la- at the lake. And suddenly, the idea of leaving seemed very hard. Don't decide yet, Hephaestus advised. Wait until daybreak. Daybreak is a good time for decisions. Would Daedalus even help us? I asked. I mean, if he gives Luke a way to navigate the labyrinth, we're dead. I saw dreams about Daedalus killed his nephew. He turned bitter and angry and... It isn't easy being a brilliant inventor, Hephaestus rumbled. Always alone, always misunderstood. Easy to turn bitter, make horrible mistakes. People are more difficult to work with than machines. And when you break a person, it can't be fixed. Hephaestus brushed the last drops of Pepsi off his work clothes. Daedalus started well enough. He helped the princes Ariadne and Theseus because he felt sorry for them. He tried to do a good deed, and everything in his life went bad because of it. Was that fair? The god shrugged. I don't know if Daedalus will help you, lad. But don't judge someone until you stood at his forge and worked with his hammer, eh? Oh, I'll try. Hephaestus stood. Goodbye, lad. You did well destroying the telekines. I'll always remember you for that. It sounded very final. That goodbye? Then he erupted into a column of flame. The fire moved over the water, heading back into the world outside. I worked along the beach for several hours. When I finally came back to the meadow, it was very late, maybe four or five in the morning, but Calypso was still in her garden, tending the flowers by starlight. Her moonlit lace glowed silver, and the other plants responded to the magic, glowing red and yellow and blue. He's ordered you to return, Calypso guessed. Well, not ordered. He gave me a choice. Her eyes met mine. I promised I would not offer. Offer what? For you to stay. Stay, I said. Like, forever? You'd be immortal on this island, she said quietly. You would never age or die. You could leave the fight to others, Percy, Jackson. You could escape your prophecy. I stared at her, stunned. Just like that? She nodded. Just like that. But my friends... Calypso rose and took my hand. Her touch sent a warm current through my body. You asked about my curse, Percy. I did not want to tell you. The truth is, the gods send me companionship from time to time. Every thousand years or so, they allow a hero to wash up on my shores. Someone who needs my help. I tend to him and befriend him. But it is never random. The fates make sure that the sort of hero they send. Her voice trembled and she had to stop. I squeezed her hand tighter. What? What have I done to make you sad? They send a person who can never stay, she whispered, who can never accept my offer of companionship for more than a little while. They send me a hero I can't help, just the sort of person I can't help falling in love with. The night was quiet, except for the gurgle of the fountains and waves lapping on the shore. It took me a long time to realize what she was saying. Me? I asked. If you could see her face, 
She suppressed a smile through her eyes were still teary. Of course you. That's why you've been pulling away all this time? I tried very hard, but I can't help it. The fates are cruel. They sent you to me, my brave one, knowing that you would break my heart. But I'm just, I mean, I'm just me. That is enough, Calypso promised. I told myself I would not even speak of this. I would let you go without even offering. But I can't. I suppose the fates knew that too. You could stay with me, Percy. I'm afraid this is the only way you can help me. I stared at the horizon. The first red streaks of dawn were lightening the sky. I could stay here forever, disappear from the earth. I could live with Calypso, with invisible servants tending to my every need. We could grow flowers in the garden and talk to songbirds and walk on the beach under perfect blue skies. No war, no prophecy, no more taking sides. I can't, I told her. She looked down sadly. I would never do anything to hurt you, I said. But my friends need me. I know how to help them now. I have to get back. She picked a flower from her garden. A sprig of silver moon lace. Its glow faded as the sunrise came up. Daybreak is a good time for decisions, Hephaestus had said. Calypso had tucked the flower into my t-shirt pocket. She stood on her tiptoes and kissed me on the forehead like a blessing. Then come to the beach, my hero, and we will send you on your way. The raft was a ten-foot square of logs lashed together with a pole for a mast and a simple white linen sail. It didn't look like it would be very seaworthy or lake-worthy. This will take you wherever you desire, Calypso promised. It is quite safe. I took her hand, but she let it slip out of mine. Maybe I can visit you, I said. She shook her head. No man ever finds Ojigia twice, Percy. When you leave... I will never see you again. But go, please, her voice broke. The fates are cruel, Percy. Just remember me. Then a little trace of her smile returned. Plant a garden in Manhattan for me, will you? I promise. I stepped onto the raft. Immediately, it began to sail from the shore. As I sailed into the lake, I realized the fates really were cruel. They sent Calypso somebody, someone she couldn't help but love. But it worked both ways. For the rest of my life, I would be thinking about her. She would always be my biggest what if. Within my minutes, the island of Gigia was lost in the mist. I was sailing alone over the water toward the sunrise. Then I told the raft what to do. Then I told, I, I said the only place I could think of because I needed comfort and friends. Camp Half-Blood, I said, sail me home. And that is the end of chapter 12. That was a really sad kind of moment when Percy left Calypso. And it really was sad because Calypso actually fell in love with Percy. But, you know, Percy couldn't stay because of his quest. And he needs to save his friends and the entire camp from Luke and the Titans. But I do hope that Calypso's curse does break sometime. Because... It's a very sad thing of lonely uh, to to be lonely, you know. And she has invisible servants, so they, she can't really talk to them either. So I really hope she can find someone to have a com- someone to have as a companion who will stay with them, who will stay with her. And we'll find out if that even ha- it will if that happens in this book or maybe in the next chapter next week 
when we read chapters 13 to 14. Until then, stay safe and stay out of boredom.